Uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, I, I think um, you are in a tough fight, but in my opinion, it's a fight that is worth fighting every day of your life. And it's a path, it's a fight for the truth, for a better life, for a better world, and not just for you. Because we know for a fact that our belief, right, are actually going to make everyone better off, but more importantly, the people who need it the most, and a lot of the unseen victims of government intervention. If we succeed, everyone is better off, and the weakest are better off. And that's a pretty important goal. So today I want to talk to you about one way of doing this. And that way is to fight the battle of ideas. That's, that's what I do, right? That's my job. I'm a policy analyst. It's also a much sexier way to describe the fact that I'm behind my computer all the time. Needless to say, my children never want to come to work with me on follow your parents to work day because basically it would be them on a chair looking at me type on my computer. But the truth is, it is what I do is like I fight the battle of ideas every day. And it is, in my opinion, the most important thing we can do. And the reason is, is that this freedom movement that we belong in, and we may have our disagreements at the margin, but I'm an economist, so what I care about is economic policy. I mean, I care about the rest, but what my day job is, is economic policy. Um, even though I will say often, I do wonder and reconsider that whether I should have reconsidered that choice because sometimes I actually feel that the true injustice in lives are fought, I actually kind of take place outside of the economic sphere. Sure, economics, um, regulation and, and government intervention in, in the world of economics is, is costly, it's inefficient, it creates a lot of uh, sorrows, but sometimes what's outside is even worse that leads to death and, and a lot of things. So sometimes I do wonder, but you know, that's, that's what I do, so I'm gonna stick to it. But this freedom movement we're in, certainly in terms of economics, stands on the shoulder of giants. Giants. On, in economics, we have Milton Friedman, Frederick Hayek, uh, uh, James Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, Ronald Coase, who, who of you guys know the name of these guys? Right? Who, who knows Coase? Coase is much less known than, than, than Friedman. And yet, every single one of these men are an inspiration for the way they have actually fought the battle of ideas. And there are so many lessons that we can learn from them. Take Friedman, for instance. Friedman is known for talking about how you need to fight so that you make the politically impossible, the politically inevitable. And he showed that every moment of his life. I can tell you, I mean, I work for the Mercatus Center and, and we, we 
pride ourselves of trying to be strategic and and um, and you know and trying to think of you know let's try to talk about the debt when everyone's talking about the debt and we think maybe we have a shot at actually kind of tipping the scale in favor of improving things as opposed to talk about street privatization, right? Like we make choices like this. Uh, we, we think about, you know, maybe this is just so far out that we shouldn't be tackling this right now because there's no chance. And yet we understand because we're in the university setting that actually it is worth fighting those things where you think you have no shot at actually tipping the scale for now. So take Friedman, for instance. In the 60s, well, actually 55, he started talking about the fact that every child in America and everywhere actually deserves the best education possible and that the best person to make that decision is not a bureaucrat, whether it be at the local level, state, or federal level, but it's the parents. He started talking about school choice, right? He was a professor at the very free market, University of Chicago. And his colleagues were like, rock on dude, but that's never gonna happen, right? And what did he do? Well, he actually continued fighting. In 55, it was a crazy, insane idea. Insane idea to talk about school choice. No one had ever thought about it that I know of, right? And he continued fighting about it. And now, in New York City, you have the governor, you have the governor of New York City, um, Andrew Cuomo, fighting on the side of school choice against the mayor, de Blasio, who was totally, you know, stooge for the for the public, for the, the school unions and things like this. But so when you have like Two Democrats going at each other, fighting about school choice. You know that we've made a difference. You know that the tenacity that Milton Friedman, in fighting from the moment his free market colleagues said, it's never going to happen, just, just this is crazy. And he continued, 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 continued to fight. That this tenacity is paid off. Take Frederick Hayek. In 1962, he wrote The Road to Serfdom. Right? At the time, just very poorly received. He exposed the uh, atrocity of centralization and authoritarian governments. Um, and he was, you know, he was laughed of the room many times over. And yet, he never let it discourage him, ever. Uh, or maybe if he was, it didn't actually show in the way and the intensity that he was fighting this fight. In 1975, I think, Margaret Thatcher um, in England was asked, she was the head of the Conservative Party, she was also the Prime Minister, was asked, was she the Prime Minister at this time? Actually, I'm not sure, but she was asked, like, what, what, what is it that's driving you? What is it that you guys believe in? And she took the Constitution of Liberty written by, by Hayek, put it on the table, and she said, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. During the Great Recession, when 
Keynesian theories, which had been debunked massively and, 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 and I think pretty effectively because they were, it was done with human stories in the road to serfdom by Hayek. Uh, when when uh, Keynesian is, being a Keynesian came back in style for a little while. I mean, it, it was Keynesian light, but it was still Keynesianism. Uh, came back in style. The road to serfdom became a bestseller again. This would have never happened if Hayek himself had not been battling for the ideas in his books and in his profession at great cost. I mean, Hayek, I mean, unlike Friedman, who was in a prestigious university, and he didn't have a position in the Department of Economics because he was a pariah in a lot of ways, you know? And, and this is the same for a lot of very respected free market economists, respected by us, who uh, have actually even remarkable academic credential, and yet most of the academic profession doesn't take them seriously. Now, these guys didn't do it alone. And this is one of the important thing that I hope you're gonna take from this talk. So, so they were tenacious, that's for sure, but they also understood that this is a fight that needs to be fought. Now I wanna bring you back to 1947, Switzerland, Montpellerin. It's a small town in, um, in Switzerland. Beautiful, truly beautiful. And they met five organizers, including Friedman and Hayek, and 39 participants, including one woman, a historian, I think her name was Veronica Westwood. And at the time, at the time it looks as if free market ideas were like no one held them. Maybe the only people who believed in those were in were at that conference. They started, arguably, the Montpelerin Society is the mother of all free market think tanks. Um, but the thing that's remarkable is like when you read actually what these guys thought at the time, what they said in their um, mission statement said it was difficult to imagine a society in which freedom may be effectively preserved. This is, this is how they felt. This is, this is, they were looking at the world around. We were getting out of the war, and yet famous, famous economists were arguing that we shouldn't let the market work. We shouldn't return to a new normal. We should, the government, because if people were let free to go back to their lives and we were to, dis, to, to basically take out all the regulations, the, the war regulations, we were going to face massive unemployment, right? We needed to keep price control. We needed to, to put restriction on, on what people could do. Of course, that wasn't the case, but these was, it was so prevalent, and not just in the US, but everywhere, Right, that this is what the world looked like. We can't imagine what it felt to be a free market economist, historian, believer in 1947 because we are benefiting right now. How, 
No matter how much we think the world around us is statist, it's nothing. Compare, look at all of you guys. Look at that number of people. Like, they, they didn't actually, putting all the free market believers, they couldn't actually feel this room, right? It was just pretty astonishing. And yet, what did they do? They acknowledge what the world was like. They acknowledged the temporary victory of a mentality that believes that free markets are bad and government intervention is good. And they not just decided to preserve and protect the flame of freedom, but to actually grow it and spread it. It's insane. It's inspiring, but in a way, it's insane. And yet, the world we live in right now is evidence that they were right and that it worked. The world today, in spite of a short resurgence of Keynesianism, you know, doesn't believe in full-on government intervention to jumpstart an economy during a recession. Economists, even on the left, they highly qualify it. They say, well, it can work, but you have to have a stimulus spending that it's timely, targeted, temporary. And Larry Summers, who was the advisor under President Obama, uh, said, you know, if you don't have all these conditions, which actually are extremely hard to put in place, especially when it comes to things like infrastructure spending, if you don't have all of this, then the result of your stimulus spending is going to be counterproductive. This is what serious economists, liberal economists, are saying. I mean, the empirical evidence is in the literature, but these guys are actually leading the fight for better stimulus and, and, and that's a victory I think we can trace to the Montpelier guys. Free, market, free trade is under attack right now. That being said, you know, the, 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 the return to more protectionism is nothing like what it was back then. All the progresses that were made you know, for, for, for 40 or 50 years to a point where, you know, Free trade was kind of like, ugh, of course, right? It's because of these guys. And I also believe that because of the foundation that they have left us on free trade, actually we are well equipped to fight the, the resurgence of protectionism, which will never dare to go as far as it was back then. And, and sure, we can do things better. We can refine our theory. There, there are things that we can, you know, we can do better. But we trace it back to these guys. There were other people. So I mentioned James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, the founders of public choice economics. That's a very strong tradition at George Mason, where I come from. Um, again, today, this notion that we should be skeptical of government is kind of like, ugh. sure, you know, 
I mean, the, the, even, I mean, even the left will recognize it sometimes. I mean, they're very inconsistent. For instance, they'll say, you know, going to the war in Iraq was a big mistake, right? It's like, it's big, of course, government fails, and they failed there. But then they're totally okay with the government regulating a sixth of the economy healthcare, right? And, and thinking that somehow the government can do just a better job than the private sector, right? Um, they're inconsistent, but they, there's this skepticism is not, is not something that's completely shocking, right? Everyone is willing to acknowledge that the government fails. The intellectual evidence for this even was actually provided by James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock. And at the time where they started writing about public choice, what would become this huge body of literature of public choice economics, I mean, it was crazy. The literature assumed the benevolence of politicians, as opposed to simply saying they're people like all of us, right? They make mistakes. They have their own private incentives. They have their own incentives, which may not be general welfare, right? Maybe re-election, maybe serving a special interest. Um, who's helping them in that re-election effort? It's like, and it's because of them. Another story I'd like to tell is a story of Ronald Coase, very famous economist, I think by the age of like 21, he'd already written the paper that would get him the Nobel Prize. And I was kind of like, I was thinking of where I was at 21 and what I was doing at 21. <laughs> no, uh, even at 47, I think I am, yeah, 47, I'm still nowhere near that. But um, brilliant economist. And in 1959, he started writing about auctioning the spectrum, you know? That thing that helps us, like, I mean, it's everywhere, right? Like smartphone, blah, blah, spectrum. Don't ask me to say more. I have my children for this. I tell them they can't go to college because who's going to help me with my phone when they go to college? So he, Coase, a famous economist, um, very respectable, testified before the FCC. And literally after he gave his five-minute remark, I, don't, I actually don't know what the format was, but he was testifying before the FCC. Um, the commissioner said, Professor Coase, is this a joke? I mean, like, that was the first question out of the, well, it wasn't a joke at all, because in the 90s under, under uh, President Clinton, they started auctioning the spectrum, right? And now it's like a no-brainer idea to auction the spectrum. Now we have fight over how we measure the cost and benefits of auctioning the spectrum. Um, my colleagues at Mercatus are always you know, pushing the government to do even more, to give up um, much more of the spectrum, to leave it in the hands of not special interests, but just much more, much more people. Um, so there's always more to do, but it's, it's just a kind of a no-brainer idea. Now, I hope you see a pattern in this, and that is that it takes time. 
to fight the battle of idea. It takes um, courage, right? You have to be able to fight for what you believe and to keep at it for a long time, even at a time where it's politically impossible, like Coase being laughed at like by, um, by the FCC commissioner and pretty much everyone else, I assume, but continue. And also, you have to be patient. You have to be really patient because it's the only way we can do this. So you may be thinking, well, but that was then, you know, things were so bad that, you know, it just, it's, it was easy back then because just any teeny progress is, but it's actually not true. It is true that in some ways we are in a situation where we have, we don't have full on government control, and it's certainly we don't have full-on free market, where someone in this kind of, kind of gray, mushy middle, right? And yet, it's still worth fighting the battle of, of ideas. Because you're, as you're fighting it, even when you're losing a fight, you are spreading ideas. You are educating people. When you're writing, I mean, I, I lose all the time. I mean, I have a few victories under my belt, but for the most part, I lose all the time, right? I mean, like, I, I would always joke that it's a miracle that I am still employed, considering that when I started working for the Cato Institute, the federal budget was $1.8 trillion dollars, and we're over four trillion now, right? Like, I mean, my job is to cut government spending, to convince politicians to cut government spending, right? And yet, I still have a job, and I have a job, I think, because my employers recognize that if we weren't fighting like this, things would be much worse. Now, it's it's not. It's not pleasant to lose all the time, right? But sometimes we win or we kind of win. So I engaged recently in a, uh, a battle against the Export-Import Bank. Um, it's, a, it's an agency that um, guarantees loans and, uh, for, for um, foreign companies who, buys, who buy domestic goods. And when you look at the data, you realize that first it creates a lot of distortions, and but also it's a it's it's no it's nothing other than cronyism, right? I mean the top companies who are beneficiary abroad and and in the U.S. are like big big companies that could do without. Um, it's the government picking winners and losers. It's the uh, it's uh, I mean and I could go on and on, right? So. That's why Politico put me on their political 50 list because, because of that battle that I engaged probably just more and I mean with more passion than people around and I wasn't alone at all, right? Um, the charter was not reauthorized 
and he got reauthorized since, but then the bank still can't function, I mean, for, for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that I would always say, right, is like no matter what the outcome is, because we fought this battle, we've actually helped educated, educating people about at least question whether it is right for the government to put in place agency that promote particular companies, especially big ones, right? And one of the reasons why I think it is important to fight this battle, I mean, there are a lot of very sensible people who are on the other side, um, is that there are a lot of unseen victims to these agencies, right? But there's much smaller people. But the reason why I think, so this is why I fight these fights. But the things that also I would tell people is that whatever the outcome, it was important to fight it, and more importantly, I'm one in a long line of people who've been fighting against the Export-Import Bank. I got given the credit for something that I don't really deserve credit for. It started a long time ago, in particular, um, Ronald Reagan's budget director, David Stockman, was, I mean, a fervent advocate against the Export-Import Bank. Um, and there were people throughout, throughout their careers who've actually been fighting it consistently when there was no hope, zero hope, to actually make any difference on this. Sally James at the Cato Institute in 2011, at the time where no one was talking about this, wrote a really amazing paper about it that I used a lot. I mean, I wrote my own research too. I did a ton of charts. I did, I was, I was engaging more on the kind of like daily battle, but I did some research too. But when you look at the intellectual path blazed by others before me, it actually made this moment possible where somehow at this moment there was a politician, there was a, there were a bunch of Congress people who were willing to take on this issue. And the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank went from being a voice vote, where basically they weren't even counting. They were just saying, let's hear it. And they would say, yo, oh! and, and, you know, and they were kind of comparing the sounds, basically, to actually a real battle, where at first Congress said, OK, we'll reauthorize it, but we want reform. And then there was this full-on battle over not reauthorizing it. And I think that victories are never, ever, never exist in isolation of warriors, freedom fighters who've been actually fighting long before you came around. So I got the credit, but the truth is, and I was happy to say it then, that it's just certainly not just mine at all. Sure, at the time I made a, a splash, but this would have not been possible. And it's very hard to trace, to figure out, you know, whose impact, whose person's made an impact, whose, but, so I will leave you with three important things. Advice in your career. 
I mean, on top of be courageous and patient, like be generous with other in giving people credit because anyone who's actually been fighting these fights, they know you're never alone. No one is that creative. No one is Friedman creative coming up with an idea. I mean, these, I mean, maybe Friedman himself was inspired by something else, right? Maybe a half-baked idea that he developed and improved for school choice, for instance. So be generous. It doesn't take anything away from you to give credit to the people before you who've been fighting these battles and, and the people with you who are fighting with you. Because you know what? It is important also for us to look as if we are an army. We're not just one crazy free market person or conservative young woman. We're an army. So be generous and, um, and don't hesitate to give credit to others. The other thing is like be prepared. Be prepared. Don't go first. I, I've learned, learned that the hard way. Uh, and I haven't been punished enough. Uh, I can tell you when I was young and I was just writing things that were just not super correct. But when you start gaining visibility, it is important that what you say is correct. So under say if you're not sure, right? And be prepared. And the final one is be nice. I was not nice when I was your age. I was just an arrogant, I wasn't nice. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> and it just really did not serve me well. Again, thank God, no one paid attention to me. So, so it had very little negative impact. But I'm pretty sure that I've really improved. And I think it's for, for I mean, remember, this is, not a, this is not about you're fighting. I mean, it may promote, it may help, help your career. But the fight is so much bigger than us. What we're fighting for is noble and bigger than any one of us. So be nice, be prepared, give credit to others, because you will need them. And together, together, we can, we can ride these barricades. And yeah, in the long run, maybe it's when you guys are old or gone, we'll succeed. I am sure of this. And some of these victories you will see, you know, over time. But keep fighting. The barricades, take it from a French person, is worth writing. Plus, I just can't imagine another way. So thank you. And I'll take your questions. Hi, Mr. Ruji. My name is Margaret Hodges, and I'm a senior at the University of Florida. And you spoke a bit about um, government intervention in the free market. So I'd just like to little, 
um, know a little bit about your thoughts about um, just President Trump's recent push for protectionism, especially in the way of like trade tariffs. Like, do you think that's counterproductive to a healthy economy? Yes, <laughs> I do. Um, I I think one of the you know we can we can argue. People have debates over whether um, this is just a strategy, a strategy and, and whether it's going to be an effective strategy in trying to get other countries to do to lower their barriers, which is would be a very good thing. I mean, there's no doubt we're not, I'm not even questioning the abuse in China. I'm not even questioning the fact that a lot of countries have higher tariffs than we have. Um, but the thing we need to understand about tariffs is um, while they may inflict some pain on the other country, uh, they're actually effectively the government pointing a gun at the US, cons at US consumers. That's what tariffs are, right? They're an import tax, so it means that the good that is being imported goes, goes up. And um, usually it is done in the name of a small special interest, um, and this this rem and and th and the number again, the reason why the tariffs may sound popular is you can point out to oh look, you know the the steel industry has lost that many jobs even though actually this is well, this is kind of story for other um, conversation. I mean the steel industry has lost jobs because of in labor savings innovation for the last 60 years. It peaked the number of employment in the steel industry in 1953, remember that? Um, 1953, that's when it peaked. Ever since, it's gone down. And thankfully, because of innovation and that increased productivity and wages and so on and so, so forth. But you can point out to some victims, but what you don't see when you impose tariffs is the number of people who see their prices go up uh, who lose their job as a result. I mean, we know from the 2002 tariffs experience, this has been studied um, under President uh, Bush, right? Employment in the steel industry didn't go up, or if it went up, it was by very few jobs. Um, prices went up. Uh, 200,000 jobs were lost in steel consuming industries. Um, a lot of facilities moved their production abroad. I mean, and we don't see these guys, right? And so, I think it's a bad policies that are meant. Our government shouldn't be, shouldn't be putting in place policies that are gonna be hurting their own people. And I will say this, there are a lot of ways we need to deal with China, but I think that we're over, um, it's an authoritarian regime. So they'll care less than we do about hurting their own people. Now, it's possible that President Trump will succeed. We'll see, right? It's going to be interesting. I think, in, uh, most likely, I think some little change is gonna happen and he's gonna claim victory and call it a day, but, um, uh, and again, I say this, even though there are a ton that other countries need to do to become better trade allies, right? You can recognize that people are a bad player and say this is not the way to go about it. Hi, um, thank you for your talk. My name is Adrian. I'm a junior at Ave Maria 
here in Florida. My question is, was there like a moment or how did you decide to enter into the battle of ideas? Was maybe a particular person inspiring to you or maybe a professor in college or how did that start? Um, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good question because I wish I had a, um, an inspiring answer, but I, I will say what the defining moment for me was when I was in my third year of college in France. Uh, I had this economics professor who was, um, who was a libertarian, and at the time I cared nothing about politics. I cared nothing about any of that stuff. And I remember listening to his talk, listening to his, his, his uh, sitting in his lectures, and, and suddenly the light went on, and I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And I got really excited about that aspect, right? About, plus, I guess, because it was me, and I just, I had two other friends, and we were like, in, in our class at the time, it was, it was a lot of us. It was like maybe like 200 of us. So it was kind of exciting to feel like we were battling the world, especially in France, <laughs> which is more like kind of Montpellier in 1947. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of my intellectual transformation. As for my career, um, is really, it's funny, I was thinking about this um, during the last lecture. It was really totally an uninspiring story. More like I had learned, or I don't know if I had learned it or if my parents had told me, or I went through college with this notion that I should never close any doors, right? Clearly, when I became uh, in, engaged, at least intellectually, I became a good student because I was driven. That opened even more doors for me, right? But I never thought, oh, I want to be, you know, I want to work in a think tank. I want to, I just never, this never, I just kind of followed these doors that opened for me. And, and think about it. That landed me, that landed me in a job where the most important skill you have is to be able to speak English. I don't. I mean, it's insane when you think about it. When I started the Cato Institute, I could, I could speak because I talk too much anyway in any language. It's like I'll figure a way out, but I couldn't write. I couldn't. Uh, it, it was just totally a miracle. I mean, that I landed these jobs and I, and I had this delusion that I could do it in another language, no less. And I can tell you, it's hard. There's a lot of, I still to this day have a lot of insecurities about this, but somehow I never let that stop me back then. I was kind of so driven by that fight. It wasn't even kind of, it wasn't, but it wasn't really thought through. So I'm not a good role model in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> because it was just like, if I think about it, it's like at some point, so I wanted to stay in the country. So when I took the LSAT, because I was like, you know what? After a PhD, I was like, I'm going to go to law school. I mean, it was just like, it was just random kind of like, and then 
I got a, that job at Cato, and then, and then I took risks. I was willing to take risks. I left the comfort of a libertarian place where I agreed with everyone to go to AEI for a one-year job. It was one of the most risky things I did. And it worked out because being in a hostile environment made me a much better scholar than if I had stayed at Cato. So I don't know exactly what advice. I think the previous speaker was much better at giving advice than me for career. Uh, but I think if you work hard and you're honest, uh, you acknowledge the mistakes you make, because I've made mistakes. Yeah. I mean, how you recoup for that, people will, that's what people will remember. And uh, you work hard and you kind of, um, you know, you don't stay in jobs that are bad. You take risks. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't have a very inspiring, because um, I was mostly driven by my ideology and yet I think that ideology in a way sometimes can be detrimental and dangerous because it can make you not as good a scholar. So I don't know what you're telling you, I'm sorry. All right, last question. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Um, my question is, do you have any advice for us who try to advocate for free market principles on very liberal campuses? So for example, I go to Rutgers, which is actually where Milton Friedman went for his undergrad. And ever since I was a freshman, I've been trying to get like a building named after him or some type of memorial because there are two unnamed academic buildings at Rutgers. But everyone I talk to is just convinced, if they even know who Milton Friedman is because Rutgers doesn't acknowledge him, they're convinced that like he's the reason that there's poverty. And like liberals are convinced that free market economics like oppress people instead of like as we know it makes everyone's quality of life better. So I was wondering if just you have any advice about how to like navigate that terrain with really hostile liberals who don't want to believe you. Well, um, so if you remember at the beginning of the Great Recession, um, there were buses with Friedman's face, like accusing him for like world poverty and the Great Recession. I mean, this is not new. And this is why, I mean, these guys have fought um, their whole career and, and, and certainly never, and, and just didn't get the credit and have been attacked in ways that are just hard to imagine. Because the higher profile you have, right, the higher, the more, um, the more attacked you are. I can just tell you from my personal life, so I live in Arlington, Virginia, and all my friends, I love them, but none of them think like me. I mean, very few people think like me. Uh, it's even more in France. <laughs> but uh, the way to go about it is not when, I think with people who are firmly hostile, right? I wouldn't wear your free market conservative thing as a matter of principle on your sleeve. I wouldn't just be in their faces. Sometimes that's what it calls for. But if people are really hostile, they're, they're just gonna tune you out if, you, if they find you aggressive. It's unfair because they're always aggressive towards us, always, right? But what I do with my friends is they like me. I, I feed them a lot too, that helps. 
they like me, and we've established a relationship of trust in completely other areas. And when issues come up, I never say, as a libertarian or as a free market person or you're wrong. And I'll say, well, how about this, though, right? And then, like, so, I mean, I can give you, like, a recent example on the, the Parkland shooting, just very emotional, terrible thing. Um, the, as my friends were just, just, we were not on the same page. I knew there was no point for me to be, to be very in their face about this. That being said, when everyone calmed down, I, for instance, said, how about the fact that the FBI, I, I, I would say things like, you know, I'm always surprised that people get really outraged about guns without, and, and offering all these policies that they want to see happen that actually would not have changed much things. But I said, more importantly, I'm always kind of surprised about the outrage here and the, the, the fact that there's no outrage with the fact that the FBI acknowledged having made a mistake, right? And you'd be surprised, like, people actually realize that there are a lot of things they don't think about. So sometimes there is a place to take them on. And my kids have gone through this with the Parkland thing, where instead I've told them, instead of taking on people and saying, starting with what you believe, or the fact that they're wrong, I said, maybe you should ask your friend why you know, you should tell your friends that maybe Australia and the confiscation of gun is not, is not an appropriate comparison with the US because we have a second am amendment and they don't, right? And then you can ask them, do you know what it takes to get rid of the second amendment? And then you can say, without ever saying what you really fundamentally believe, you can say, so let's try to think within the constraint of what is possible, about what solutions can be put in place. And you'd be surprised. I think that most people respond emotionally and never bother to kind of actually think about this. Is this even physical? Even, is it even possible? Is it even you know, within the realm of reality? And, and when they're calm and you approach it like this, it works, so it's, it's true in every conversation. I used to be in, I remember conversations with my parents' friends. They're like, you're a statist. If you start like this, it's just not gonna be a very good conversation. Or as a libertarian, as a free market, as a, they'll shut you out. That's, that's my only, it's my only, I, I, it's not a question, and I think Rachel said it yesterday, it's always finding this balance between, you should never cave for your principle, but it's just the way you express it, it matters. They don't do you, they don't grant you, I mean, they're not gonna treat you this way. It's just don't lose your cool. Just stay focused on your goal. And, and, and you'll be surprised, people, there are actually some people who are willing to, and, and when you succeed, you do us all a great service because you make it 
easier for each one of us who don't even know that you've been a kind, honest, intellectual, conservative, engaged in a debate for idea that you've, you've helped us all. So thanks, all of you. And you know, keep at it. I mean, it's hard, but it is really worth it. Thank you.